If we say, well, France should take them, that's the first safe country, then France says the next country should have taken. We already see 86% of refugees in developing nations. This would just force everybody into a handful of countries. The idea that people should stay in the first safe country they arrive in has got no basis in law and no basis in common sense. I'm Isabel Hogal, and this is Borderline. You've heard one of them, I'm sure. That guy on Twitter who sees a post about a woman drowning in the channel and who says, that's sad, but she should have waited her turn. The guy in the comments section who blames a father for having been separated from his child by immigration enforcement. Or that uncle at Christmas dinner who says other countries should welcome refugees, but not us, certainly not us. When I see those comments, and there's been a lot this week after the tragedy in the channel over the weekend, I get angry. But there is someone that I turn to, to help me get over that anger, or at least find the right words to respond. And that's my guest today, Daniel Soej. He is the director of Stand For All, a progressive organization in the UK. He is an expert on international refugee law and someone who advocates constantly for refugees and for applying the international laws and treaties that we have all signed up to when it comes to compassionate enforcement of asylum. Now, Daniel is certainly partisan and an advocate on these issues, as our other guests have had on the podcast. And I've thought a lot about what my role here is as a journalist. But I'll be honest, This is one of those issues on which I refuse to see two sides. It's like climate change and a handful of other topics that we cover as journalists. There has to be a line where human rights and just being a decent person takes precedence over playing both sides of a political argument that has no place in civilized society. So that's what we're discussing today with Daniel Sohaj. Here he is. Thank you, Daniel, for joining me beyond the Twitter feed. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. So I thought, gosh, I have so many questions and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play dumb a little bit because um, a lot of my questions are actually things that I see people say about the current migration situation that drives me crazy. And I, I don't know, you know how to phrase the best response. And then I look to you and you always have a great thread about why, you know, whatever someone said in a tabloid is absolutely idiotic. So, uh, so I'm going to play, I'm going to play the, the dumb role on this one, but I thought we should start with kind of looking at what's the situation. Now we had horrible news on Friday of 27 people uh, dying, mm-hmm. trying to cross the channel. I think this one made more news because it's a larger number, but it's not a, a one-off thing it's not a rare occurrence no, is it? not by a long chalk no no so what's happening um, in the channel right now is it you know is it a crisis which is the headline you see everywhere it, it's not a crisis it's not a it's definitely not a migrant crisis it it might be a political crisis from the point of view of the government but the numbers we're seeing they're still far lower than a lot of other countries and there's good reasons why people are crossing the channel at the moment as opposed to taking other routes. Um, I mean, the death toll last week of 27 people was significant because of 
how many people it was from one boat. But if you think back two years ago, 39 people died in the back of a refrigerated lorry um, for because they were crossing into the UK. And that's so these aren't new issues. These aren't things that have suddenly sprung up from nowhere. And, and it's definitely not a crisis in terms that's been put across in the media. So, so what is happening? Are we seeing more crossings? Are we seeing more um, asylum applications, more migrants wanting to make their way to Europe into the UK than we might have uh, a couple of years ago, than we might have before the pandemic? Well, over the last year and a half during the pandemic, overall asylum applications, particularly in the UK, have actually been down on previous years. And we're still, even though they are increasing, we're still nowhere close to previous numbers that we were seeing just 10, 20 years ago. So these aren't numbers that are insurmountable. But what we are seeing are a lot more drivers for people having to move. Um, climate change is obviously creating a major driver, but people who are displaced by climate change aren't technically classed as refugees and therefore can't seek asylum really um, but also ongoing conflicts Afghanistan at the moment we're seeing more people having to flee there since the Taliban took control again Yemen is still ongoing there's been civil conflict in Sudan Eritrea again we're seeing increased conflict so there's a lot of different drivers for people um, the main two countries people crossing into the UK are Iran and Iraq and we know there's good reasons why people continue to flee and seek safety from there so So we're not seeing changes from pre-pandemic. We're seeing the same thing, just more focused. People are more aware of it, I think, would be the way to put it, because other routes have been closed to them. Mm, so crossing the channel on a boat kind of becomes the only way at the moment. Yeah. It's You're almost seeing all other routes that we saw pre-pandemic being funneled into one. And as well as being an incredibly dangerous crossing, it's also one that provides very good images for the press. So when you have pictures of people coming off boats on the beaches, it makes for good press coverage, which keeps it highlighted, and it becomes a rolling thing rather than people actually focusing on what the reality of the situation is. Mm. I remember, and that's been a thing for, for a while now, I remember when I was studying journalism in the US, we were talking about undocumented migration, and it was always, you know, some some picture of people trying to cross the Rio Grande and the Mexican border. And it was like, well, actually, most undocumented people just overstayed a, a visa. And, you know, <laughs> it's just exactly. it's not it's not quite as picturesque, is it? <laughs> But it is the reality. That's the thing. I mean, if we look in the UK, I believe it's about 86% of people who become undocumented arrive perfectly legally. And it's normally down to there can be a delay submitting a form or something's prevented it. But they've come perfectly legally. I mean, we're talking very small numbers overall who enter the country and don't seek asylum and then become undocumented further on from the start. Mm. And it's the same in America. Yeah. And and in France and, and everywhere. Yeah. So I wanna I wanna talk through kind of a few of the objections that we hear, bearing in mind that these are incredibly heartless and immoral <laughs> objections to have when someone just died, but unfortunately they are the conversations that, that we're forced to have. Um, and this weekend on Twitter, I just got a little mad because a journalist shared a beautiful picture of the first identified victim of the 
the boat that sank, and it was a 21-year-old um, Iraqi Kurdish woman seeking to get married with her partner who was already in the UK. And so many responses were sad, but why didn't she wait in the queue like everyone else? Why didn't she wait her turn? Um, so why don't they? <laughs> Where <laughs> is there a queue? <laughs> There's, there's no cue. Um, one of the things we see a lot in the press is that people, they refer to those crossing as migrants rather than asylum seekers. And that creates this sort of false impression that people can enter through the immigration system rather than the asylum system, which are two separate things. There's no cue for an asylum seeker. They are all justified in coming across. Now, in the case of Nori, it's... It's incredibly tragic in more than one way, more than just the loss of life, that we've previously had family reunification routes. They've been suspended. So there used to be routes that she could possibly have used rather than the Channel Crossing, which don't exist at this moment in time for people. So no one's jumping a queue for this. Um, they're using the only route really left to people to try and find safety in the UK. And there's good reasons why people feel safer in the UK, and it, again, it's a small number, than they do in France. But there's no queue jumping involved. It's a, and people can't apply for asylum outside of the UK. They can't apply for a visa to come here. If you're fleeing war and persecution, you're not liable to be able to get a visa from the country you're fleeing from. So there's all sorts of good reasons why people have to make the channel crossings. So that's another objection that we hear a lot, is like, why didn't they apply for asylum in the first safe country that they entered en route to the UK. The UK, you know, and Britain being an island is always going to be another country that you go through on the way to it, right? It, oh, it, this is one of the ones which always gets me. It's the first safe country because it doesn't exist anywhere in legal instruments. Closest you'll get is the Dublin regulations, which is first port of entry. And that's way down the list of hierarchy of needs and where people should be processed for their applications. And it doesn't make any sense in a logical sense anyway, because if you say first safe country, if we say, well, France should take them, that's the first safe country, then France says the next country should have taken. We already see 86% of refugees in developing nations. This would just force everybody into a handful of countries. So it makes absolutely no sense on a logical status. It's no sense on a legal basis. And there's very good reasons people feel safer in the UK. Family ties, as we've just spoken about, or language. English is a widely spoken language. Part of its colonial heritage is that a lot of people around the world speak it. If you speak the language, you're going to feel safer in the country than you do in one where you don't. Particularly if you've had to flee everything and leave everything behind, your idea of what's safe is going to be very specific. So the first safe country myth is, it is a myth, and, but it seems to have gained traction recently, unfortunately. Mm. Perhaps because we hear a lot from uh, uh, some of our leaders mm. who, who say very convincingly that it has a basis in law. Um, I'm just not sure which law. <laughs> It, that's the thing, it has no basis in law, but we hear it time and again from politicians, from journalists, from people on Twitter, obviously. But it's got no... The idea that people should say in the first safe country they arrive in has got no basis in law and no basis in common sense. Okay. 
okay, another one that I'm curious about is the idea that people arrive illegally. Is it illegal to land on British shores without pre-authorization and say, you know, uncle, hello, Mr. Police Officer, I need help. Let me seek asylum. So long as they seek asylum, I believe it's in th within three days, they are not here illegally. For that period, until they have sought asylum, it's undocumented. But there is nothing illegal about setting off from the coast of France. There is nothing illegal about crossing the Channel. And there is nothing illegal about seeking asylum. In fact, under international law, your right to enter a country by any means that you see necessary to seek asylum is protected. You cannot be penalised for your manner of entry. And yet it is um, a, a manner of entry that is entirely controlled by criminal gangs. Um, I'd, is it? I'd, no, I disagree no? with that. Um, okay. it's, that's a common one, and it's one we see so often that I can understand why a lot of people think it. But what we're actually seeing in Calais and Shores of France, there are criminal gangs, absolutely. There's smugglers and there's traffickers, and those are two very different things. And they used to have a lot firmer grasp on it. But what's happened over recent times is it's more you see family groups or groups of friends or social groups who've met up during the rest of the journey who then actually self-facilitate. They buy the dinghy, again, perfectly legal to buy a dinghy, and organise the crossing themselves. They're not smugglers. They're doing it in social groups. So it's not just about criminal gangs that we're talking about here. Not every crossing is criminally facilitated. Okay. Do you have a sense of the proportion of each? Or? I, I don't know entirely. Um, there's been some statistics flying around, but it's one of those ones which is far too hard for anyone to be able to say for certain the exact proportions. So we, couldn't, we can't really pinpoint it. What we know anecdotally is that it's an increasing thing of self-facilitation and we're probably seeing slightly more, I would say, or people making their own way across and relying on gangs. Okay. And for the part that is um, criminal gangs, you mentioned a difference between smugglers and traffickers, which I've heard you talk about before, but our listeners haven't. So can you explain you know, what that difference is um, and, and who, who falls into each category? Yeah. So this has always been a bit of a bugbear of mine because in a lot of reporting, it's always referred to as traffickers. The thing is, most of the gangs who are organising crossings are smugglers. And it, it sounds like I'm being pedantic and nitpicking here. But a smuggler, smuggling is transactional. So they will pay up front normally. They can be threatened. And obviously we are talking about criminal gangs to make the journey. It tends to be voluntary. You go to a smuggler yourself, you pay up front, transactional, and it's short term. Once your journey's over, that's it. They're done with you. They're finished. Trafficking is where it's often not voluntary. Often you're taken from places or that you've been coerced by various means. It doesn't have to cross a border. Smuggling crosses borders. Trafficking can happen. It happens in the UK constantly. We have children within the UK who are trafficked, um, the county lines is something that crops up in the news quite often. And it leads to long-term exploitation. So if someone, where you see the real issue is when people can't afford to pay smugglers, 
they're then forced into the hands of traffickers who will extract payment afterwards by exploiting people. And that's where you have all sorts of long-term criminal facilitation of in the grey and black economies taking place as well. It's They're the ones who, both are criminals, but traffickers will continue to harm people even after the crossing's been made. I know a lot of uh, refugee advocates such as yourself are, are quite mad at some of the policies that are coming out of the British government because essentially they facilitate the work, quote-unquote, of um, smugglers and traffickers and kind of play into their hands. So how do they play into their hand and, and what should be done instead to reduce that criminality? Well, if you look at some of the upcoming legislation in the UK, the Nationality and Borders Bill, it makes it harder for victims of trafficking to come forward because if they aren't identified within a set period of time, then they risk being deported. If they have been, they can say that they've committed a criminal act during their period, of, then they can be deported. So traffickers can turn around to them and say, you've broken the law, even though they've been forced into it by the traffickers. If you set foot and if you go to the authorities, they'll deport you. So it just adds an extra thing that traffickers can use to hold over them. It, by creating a two-tier system, it denies people rights, which again makes it harder for them and less likely that they're able to report on trafficking and smuggling, for example, or identify those who've been carrying out the actual serious criminals running it. It makes it more likely that, as I said, they are going to be deported. So that creates a never-ending cycle for the traffickers because, as we said, people, when they're coming here, and again, it's a small proportion, are coming for good reasons. So if you just send them back to another country, that, they're not going to suddenly go, OK, that's it, I don't need to come back to the UK. They're forced back into the hands of gangs. It's a never-ending supply of people who have been created. What we need to be doing is looking at ways that we can take that supply element away from the gangs. And there's lots of suggestions put forward. You sometimes hear a phrase, safe and legal routes which is a bit of a fluffy term because the government uses that to discuss resettlement routes. Resettlement routes account for about 4% of all asylum seekers globally. So they're very, very limited anyway across the whole world. So safe and legal routes needs to be expanded to also include things like removing carrier liability fines, for example. That's where, whether it's an airline, Eurostar, ferries, they can be fined and potentially face criminal charges. If even unknowingly, they transport an asylum seeker. So it turns cabin crew into de facto border enforcement agents. They can remove someone from a flight if they think that person is going to seek asylum in the UK. So if we change that so that people were able to make other take other routes in, then it takes out the need to rely on gangs. If we set up processing abilities in France so that people can start to have their claims processed there, then again, it removes that need to cross the channel. There's no silver bullet to any of this. There's no one-off, we can do this and it will solve everything. But we need to be looking at why do people cross and how can we make it simpler, easier for them to seek asylum when they do need to, rather than just focusing on exclusion, which just keeps driving people back into the hands of gangs. And as the money dwindles for smugglers, as I said, they're forced further into the chance of having to go into traffickers, which creates long-term exploitation, long-term criminal problems. The, the carrier liability law that you mentioned, 
um, it's worth highlighting it is you can be fined for letting someone travel legally to a country where they will legally apply for asylum when they Absolutely. arrive. Yes. Yeah. Wow. They, they can <laughs> have all the correct documents. They can have their passport, all the boarding ticket, have bought the ticket perfectly legally, fly as any of us would to another country. But if the airline thinks they are going to seek asylum having landed, having broken no laws, they can still remove someone from that flight. And that airline, if they do allow them to fly, can still be fined. So. That's interesting because I'm, I'm trying to picture the kind of traveler who would be targeted in that way. Um, you know, if you're a uh, political opponent in Hong Kong or somewhere, you fly to London and you apply for asylum. And I don't think anyone stops you doing that, as they shouldn't, you know? Yeah. No, um, we, we're seeing it at the moment with moves to help facilitate, for example, people getting out of Hong Kong who have been sort of at the focus of some of the political unrest at the moment. It tends to be applied realistically from people coming from more developing nations. And there is, I think it's safe to say, an unfortunate, deliberate or otherwise, level of implied racism in it, of they see somebody and go, that person can't be coming to the UK just for a holiday, or we think. And there's always going to be a level of implied racism in that judgment at the time. Mm. So. so the final question that I have about objections we hear a lot in the UK, and then we'll make sure to criticize other countries as well, <laughs> starting with mine, um, is the idea that well, they're not refugees anyway, you know, nine out of ten, they're economic migrants, and they have no legitimacy in in coming over and they're not going to seek asylum or they're not going to get asylum if they seek it. Which we hear our Home Secretary Priti Patel continually come out with this claim. She's repeated that 70% of those crossing the channel are young men and economic migrants more than once now. And there is no evidence to support that. In fact, the evidence shows the exact opposite. 98% of those people who cross the channel seek asylum. 91% of them come from 10 major refugee-producing countries. More than 60% of them are granted asylum once they've sorted. The majority of people that we are seeing cross the channel, there is no argument other than to say they are, in inverted commas, genuine asylum seekers. So it makes no sense to try and argue that they're not. We do not have the most open and welcoming asylum system in the UK. And even under our current rules, the majority of people who cross are granted asylum either on first instance or second or on appeal. And it's roughly about 70% will get asylum in the end. Okay. We know that the British government is quite mad at France. Um, and France is quite mad at the UK right now as well. Because um, essentially... It is blaming France for not doing enough to stop those crossings. Mm. And um, at the heart of that is a treaty that we're suddenly hearing a lot about, on French news at least, which essentially has moved the British border on French soil. Is that yeah. right? That's right, yeah. Effectively. It allows effectively for Britain to run its border controls on French soil 
to prevent people crossing the channel via any means um, so they don't have to be processed. Because as soon as they are in the UK, then you enter a whole other world of returns and you need an agreement with countries in order to return people. And obviously a lot of other countries are not keen on saying, well, we'll take more refugees so that you can take fewer. Brexit didn't help either with the return agreements. Brexit didn't help with the return agreement because it pulled us out of the Dublin agreement. But ironically, because I said earlier on about the hierarchy of needs for processing people, Britain under the Dublin regulations took more asylum seekers than it returned because Mm. of family ties in particular. And it was still a very small number. You're talking 300, I think it was, something like that in a year. It was a very small number. But the idea that Brexit was suddenly going to make it easier to remove people from Buddhism never made any sense because you suddenly were removing yourself from any agreement that would have allowed for any returns. So you can't just send people back to a country where that country said, no, we're not accepting them. Right. So sorry I interrupted you, but you were talking about the the British border in France. So essentially... British border control or UK border control is happening in France and it is France that is responsible for making sure boats don't leave in the direction of England. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. France, up until the point that the boats have left French waters, is theoretically responsible for ensuring they don't leave from French beaches. But there's actually very little that France can do overall to stop it. Because, again, what are you stopping people under? What are you prosecuting them under? Because it's not illegal to launch a boat. So they are in a difficult position. Now, I'm not saying in this that France is entirely blameless. Uh, We've seen pictures, for example, of French police watching some of the boats setting off in conditions where they know that people are going to be at risk. But overall, they really aren't, they don't have that many options overall to stop people carrying out what is essentially a legal activity at the time. So let's talk about how France is treating people who are currently around Calais in Normandy, where where my family lives. I I see them sometimes when I cross as well. How is the French police, is the French government um, treating people who are there waiting to cross? Um, not good, is the simple answer to that. Last year, France was actually found guilty of violating refugee rights and fined for it. We're seeing at the moment the destruction of camps again. Now, the argument for destroying camps is that it will deter people from making coming to Calais and out Normandy and making channel crossings. We saw the same arguments made five years ago when they destroyed the jungle camp in Calais. All it did was leave people without any shelter over winter, forcing more people to have to risk the crossings because otherwise they were going to freeze to death on the side of the road, effectively. In Calais, it was made illegal um, a number of years ago for organisations to provide aid, food and water to asylum seekers who were sleeping rough. We've seen plenty of evidence of police officers attacking both asylum seekers and NGO workers. Um, So... There are serious issues with the treatment of asylum seekers, but it's not limited to just France. I mean, this is something which we see widespread across the EU, 
many, basically pretty much every developed country we see it, where there are asylum seekers having to sleep rough. Mm. So let's zoom out then. The other so-called crisis we're seeing in Europe is at the eastern border, especially between Belarus and Poland, right, where... No. The EU is saying is accusing well, and there is proof of it that Belarus is, has been essentially using migrants as kind of a a, a, a weapon. A hybrid war. Terrible word to mean. use, but yeah, uh, yeah against um, against Europe. There's no question that Lukashenko is doing that, and we've seen so much evidence of this. We're seeing. Belarusian border control guards who are actually physically forcing people towards the Polish border. There is, however, the argument to be made that he can only do that because he knows what the EU's response will be. We're talking about four to 5,000 people overall. Again, most coming from Iraq and Iran. That would be about 150 people per EU country if they provided safety for them. Instead, what we're seeing are tactics, including water cannons on people who are already freezing and suffering hypothermia to keep them out. There's... I don't, I don't like ascribing blame because I think that too often we focus on the blame that needs to be ascribed rather than how we can work for solutions. But in this instance, both sides to different extents and different reasons, are to blame for the current situation on the border. What the focus, I think, needs to be is that we're seeing children freezing to death on the border of one of the world's largest trading blocks and some of the richest countries in the world are in that block. And we know that Lukashenko is not going to stop. We have to, I say we as in the EU and the UK, have to step up and say which we prioritizing more the border or people's lives and that's what it comes down to at this point in time on across the whole board with us but the political response so far has been about strengthening the border right that's that's what we keep hearing that's what we keep hearing there was a meeting at the weekend um regarding the channel crossings in particular but did focus on the fact that the response is from the EU, they need to strengthen their border controls. Now, the EU's border controls currently involve externalisation. That's where you get other countries to deal with asylum seekers, predominantly Libya, where we know that in camps which have been EU funded, people are tortured and sold into slavery. So they expend billions on this. They've paid Turkey to host asylum seekers. Turkey has about 3.6 million refugees. And the answer isn't going to be, let's just continue doing this and making it harder, because we've seen that it doesn't work, and we've seen that it costs lives. Yeah, it's something that's always, um, that I've always found stunning. I saw a number recently, it was in Australia, and the annual cost of hosting a single refugee on, on Nauru, uh, where they've externalized their detention, immigration detention, was $4 million Australian dollars a year. Uh, think of the it's amount of humanitarian good expensive. you can do. That's, that's always my argument. It is phenomenally ex expensive to keep people out when you could actually use that money to develop local communities so you help with homelessness in your own country, parallel develop so that you're able to provide support for 
local citizens and asylum seekers at the same time at a fraction of the cost that you spend trying to keep people out. I think the argument that that you're going to hear against that is that if you let people in, you're creating a pull factor and and you're going to encourage more people to come because they see that it works. Ah, pull factors are a contentious thing within any discussion of migration anyway. Pull factors are so personal to individuals that whether or not you actually start saying we're going to let more people in or not, it, it's probably going to have very little impact on the number of people who at least seek asylum or seek trying to come in anyway. Um, as we said before with the UK, it's family ties and language. Those are common pretty much everywhere. But most people stay in their regions of origin because most people want to, most refugees want to go back to their country of origin anyway. And that's, we see that time and again with statistics. But most people don't want to move too far away from their friends, their family, everybody they know, ever think they know. So it's not a pull factor like that. It's just ensuring that those who are coming anyway aren't going to potentially die on the way. So what does a good, humane, effective, realistic immigration, refugee, asylum policy look like maybe maybe stick with refugee and asylum because i know you want to differentiate that from all yep. other immigration okay so with refugee and asylum it needs to be well resourced the people who are processing applications need to be properly trained so that they can identify the nuance when people are seeking safety they've obviously gone they've normally gone through quite traumatic experiences you can't just drag that out to somebody in one interview i mean you think about any of us, if we need to talk through problems, it takes time to be able to vocalise them, to actually accept them ourselves. So it needs to, they need to have trained people who can actually work with those who are crossing to find out the full story. That means resourcing the systems better, because then you can speed up the systems so that you don't end up with these backlogs that we keep hearing about in the UK and across the EU. And you need to make it simpler to access. Ironically, you will you cut down on issues if you make it simpler and easier because people then you can judge the claim faster for one thing. You know, if someone's coming in and you can process it quickly with trained people, properly resourced, you can identify those who need assistance faster than if you're dragging your feet on any other way. It's interesting. I talked uh, on this podcast a few months ago with Dina Nayiri, who is an author and um, was a refugee as a child. Yeah. Uh, and she talked about those those interviews and the problems with trauma and being able to tell your story. And I thought it was very telling that we put these issues of asylum and refugee in most, in every everywhere I know, and I'd be, I'd be happy to hear if, if it's different somewhere else, but it's always done by like an interior ministry or home office, a department in charge of security and policing and not, you know, a social care kind of department it's very that, telling isn't it that's very telling and it's pretty much the same across the board that it is always treated as a security matter as a criminal matter rather than a social care matter um just to bring it back to the uk for a second on that we're seeing at the moment children unaccompanied children some of whom have been trafficked being placed in hotels by the home office and then the home office 
passing them through to local authorities, with the Home Office claiming it's the corporate parent of this. But at no point should the Home Office be involved in that. It should be the Department for Education who deal with it on a child protection basis. But because they've, they're asylum seeking, it's been taken as a security matter and therefore the Home Office deals with it. And we see that all over the world. Mm. Zooming out again to the broader world, you did mention a few times, I think it's worth highlighting, that in the grand scheme of things, the UK and Europe in general takes very little responsibility or, or a, a smaller number than it probably should in terms of receiving yeah. and welcoming refugees and asylum seekers, correct? Not just the UK and the EU, but developed nations as a whole. As I said, 86% of refugees are in developing nations. Now, Germany deserves a mention on this for the fact that it is it maintains being one of the higher numbers, hosting higher numbers. Um, I think it's about 1.2 million refugees. But they're the exception rather than the rule. We see more often than not, refugees are stuck, for want of a better word, for some of them, in poorer countries, developing countries, and countries which need resources to be able to provide a specific assistance for them. So they end up being denied that. Now, we've seen that in Libya recently, where there wasn't enough food to pass out to people who aren't allowed to go anywhere else. And we're seeing detention camps there where people are crammed in sometimes two to three hundred people per into a cell. You know, it's the, some of the conditions are quite horrendous. You mentioned Germany. I don't know how much you follow German politics, but given the, the new coalition that just came in, are you hopeful that, that Germany is going to maintain its rank in terms of, of uh, welcoming refugees and perhaps influence Europe in a different direction? I hope so. Um, we've seen recently, we mentioned about the border between Poland and Belarus, the eastern border, and Germany did offer to open a humanitarian corridor for a certain number. So I'm hopeful, but I've also become increasingly cynical over the years of a lot of countries. So my hope is tempered by maybe a little bit of cynicism about how things will play out. Mm. I'm sorry you got cynical. Um, <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying not to be, but it's. But you know, after after months and months of interviews on this topic, it is. It is hard. I wonder if, in conclusion of our conversation, and I hope you have an answer to this. Can you point to a place that's doing this right? There's there's no perfect example, but if you look at outside of our own borders and development, you look at Uganda. Uganda brought in policies which allowed for people to seek asylum, have a plot of land to work. They created very a very inclusive way of dealing with asylum seekers originally. It's, I will admit that has now started to shift away from that. But when they initially brought it in, it created an economic benefit for the whole country. So it worked. And if we can start looking at those sorts of policies and expanding on them, working out where the kinks were and how we work with local communities on that, then we can start to benefit everybody. But at the moment, what we're seeing is an increased focus across the world on controlling borders, strengthening border controls and deterrence. And there's no, there are some who are trying more than others to help 
asylum seekers. But I don't think we can say at the moment there's anyone who's getting it absolutely right. There's a lot of work to be done. And that needs to be done by all of us working together. It's not going to be solved by one country doing it. It needs to be a global push. The irony, of course, it was uh, a conversation a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, is that all the countries doing their best to keep refugees and asylum seekers and immigrants in general at bay are also countries with aging and declining populations who could really use uh, kind of a new vital workforce. Absolutely. It's one of the most sort of ridiculous things about this is that there's this sort of strange idea in people's minds that refugees must be uneducated or illiterate. And you see, I see it. I get so many comments on this um, constantly. And it's nonsense. You are, for the vast majority, you're talking about highly educated, highly fluent people who are benefits of the countries they are going to. I mean, we saw during the pandemic that a number of countries actually started saying, but if you are a trained doctor, please help us to refugees. Because we in, you know, we are seeing aging populations declining with us. And you shouldn't look at people in terms of just what they can do for labour and things like that. But there is a practical solution here. And the majority of those crossing have skills which benefit the countries they're coming to. Mm-hmm. An incredible resilience when you think of what Absolutely. they got to get here. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible what they've been through. And still so many people I speak to have hope and positivity. And that's something that I think we all need at the moment. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. That was Daniel Sohaj, director of Stand For All. You can follow him on Twitter and I recommend it at stand for all with an underscore between each word. I'll make sure to share that in the show notes. Remember that you can support Borderline by becoming a member at borderlinepod.com. There's a brand new gorgeous landing page where you can find out more about this project and sign up to become a member. And you can also continue to find the blog, the newsletter, all the content. Borderlinepod.com is your one destination. I'll talk to you next week when we'll be continuing this conversation about the current state of immigration and policy and borders, this time in the United States with Susan Cohen. She's an immigration lawyer. She was one of the people responsible for obtaining a stay of the Muslim ban when uh, President Trump first put it into effect. She has years and years and decades of advocacy and of casework with thousands of immigrants to the United States. And we talked today, actually, but you'll hear it next week, about uh, current immigration policy, what has changed and what cannot change under the Biden administration and more. So please tune in next week. Make sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform so you don't miss it. And borderlinepod.com, again, is your one go-to to listen and to become a member and support this podcast. Thank you so much. I'm your host, Isabel Hogol. Music was by Offshane. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production. I'll talk to you next week.